Section Two of The Begum's Fortune by Jules Verne. Translated by W. H. G. Kingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two A Pair of Chums. Dr. Saracen's son Octavius was not exactly what one would call a dunce. He was neither a blockhead nor a genius, neither plain nor handsome, neither tall nor short, neither dark nor fair. His complexion was not brown, and he was altogether an average specimen of the middle class. At school he had never taken a very high place, although occasionally gaining a prize— he had failed in his first examination for passing into the College of Engineers, but a second attempt admitted him, although with no great credit. There was a want of decision in his character. His mind was content with inaccuracies. He was one of those people who are satisfied to have a general idea of a subject and who walk through life by moonlight." such men float at the mercy of fate as corks do on the crests of waves they are driven to the equator or to the pole according to whether the wind blows north or south chance decides their career had dr saracen altogether understood his son's character he might have hesitated to write the letter he did but the wisest man may be a blind father. Fortunately for Octavius, he had, during his school life, come under the influence of an energetic nature, which, by its vigorous strength, ruled him for his good, albeit somewhat tyrannically. He formed a close friendship with one of his companions, Max Bruckmann, a native of Alsace, a year younger than himself, but far his superior in physical, intellectual, and moral vigor. Max Brookman, left an orphan at the age of twelve, inherited a small income, just sufficient to defray the expense of his education. His life at college would have been monotonous had he not passed the holidays with Octavius, or Otto, as he called his friend at his home. The young Alsacian very soon felt himself one of Dr. Saracen's family. Beneath a cold exterior lay a warm and sensitive nature, and he considered that he was bound for life to those who acted like father and mother to him. He positively adored Dr. Saracen, his wife, and their pretty, thoughtful little daughter— his heart expanded under the influence of their kindness, and he greatly wished to be useful to them by helping Jeanette, who loved her studies to advance in them and thoroughly to cultivate her excellent abilities and firm, sensible mind, while he longed to lead Otto to become as good a man as his father. This latter task he well knew to be by no means so easy as the former— yet Max was resolved to attain his double purpose. Max Brookman was one of those trusty and gallant champions whom year by year Alsace sends forth to do battle on the great arena of life in Paris. 
as a mere child, he distinguished himself by the strength and flexibility of his muscles, as much as by the vivacity and intelligence of his mind. Inwardly full of life and courage, his outward form exhibited strong muscular development rather than graceful proportions. At college, he excelled in everything he attempted, whether sport or study. Reaping an annual harvest of prizes, he thought the year wasted if he failed to gain all within his reach. At twenty, his form was large, robust, and in splendid condition. His movements were animated, and his well-shaped head betokened unusual intelligence. When he entered college, the same year with Octavius, he stood second, and was resolved to be first when the time came for leaving it. Without his persistent energy to urge him forward, Octavius would have never got in at all. For the space of a whole year, Max had driven and goaded him to work, had regularly compelled him to succeed. He entertained for this friend of weak and vacillating nature a sentiment of kindly compassion, such as one might suppose a lion to exhibit towards a little puppy. He liked to feel that he could nourish this parasitical plant from the superabundance of his own sap and cause it to flourish and blossom beside him. The War of 1870 broke out at the close of one of their terms. Max, full of patriotic grief at the fate which threatened Strasbourg and Alsace, hastened to enlist in the 31st Regiment of Light Infantry. Otto, as Max called him, and as we will for the future, at once followed his example. Side by side, the two friends, stationed in the outposts of Paris, went through the severe campaign of the siege. At Champigny, Max received a ball in his right arm, at Busenval, an epaulette on his left shoulder. Otto received neither wound nor decoration. It could not have been his fault, for he followed his friend everywhere, scarcely half a dozen yards in his rear. But those half dozen yards made all the difference. After the peace, the two friends resumed their studies, occupying modest apartments together near the college. The recent misfortunes of France, the loss to her of Lorraine and Alsace, had matured the character of Max. He felt and spoke like a man. It is the vocation of the youth of France, said he, to repair the errors of their fathers. By genuine hard work alone can this be done. Max rose every morning at five o'clock and made Otto do the same. He obliged him to be punctual at his classes and never lost sight of him during the hours of recreation. The evening was devoted to study, with occasional pauses for a pipe or a cup of coffee. At ten they retired to rest, their hearts content, their brains well filled. A game at billiards now and then, a well-chosen play or concert, a ride to the forest of Verriers, a country walk, and twice a week a lesson in fencing and boxing, these were their amusements. 
from time to time otto casting curious eyes at the very questionable enjoyments of other students would make feeble attempts at revolt and talk of going to see caesar larue who was studying law and passed most of his time at the beer shop of saint michel but max treated these fancies with utter contempt and derision that they usually passed off quietly on the twenty ninth of october eighteen seventy one about seven o'clock in the evening the two friends were seated as was their wont side by side at the same table with a shaded lamp between them max was working a problem in applied mathematics relative to the stability of blocks and had thrown himself heart and soul into his subject otto was devoting himself sedulously to something which he thought of much greater consequence the brewing of a pint of coffee it was one of the few things in which he flattered himself he really excelled perhaps because he had daily practice in it thereby escaping for a few minutes the troublesome business of squaring equations which he considered that max really did carry too far drop by drop he let his boiling water pass through a thick layer of powdered mocha and he ought to have been contented with such tranquil happiness but he was annoyed at the devoted industry of max and felt an unconquerable desire to interrupt him it would be a good plan to buy a percolator said he suddenly this ancient and solemn method of filtering is a disgrace to our modern civilization do buy a percolator it will perhaps prevent your wasting an hour every evening with this cookery replied max and he returned to his problem the entrados of a vault is an ellipsoid let a b c d be that principal ellipse which contains the two axes o a equal to a o b equal to b while the least axis o zero degrees c degrees is vertical and equal to c then that which supports the elliptic vault at this moment came a rap at the door a letter for monsieur octave saracen it may be imagined that this interruption was heartily welcomed by that young gentleman ah from my father it is his hand i see come this is something like a letter he exclaimed as he weighed the packet of papers in his hand max knew that the doctor was in england he had been in paris a week before on his way there and had treated the two lads to a dinner fit for an emperor at the palais royal for although that once famous place was quite out of fashion dr saracen continued to regard it as the centre of parisian taste and refinement let me know what your father says about his hygienic conference said max it was a good idea of his to attend that french savants are inclined to be too exclusive and max returned to his problem the extraters will be formed by another similar ellipsoid having its centre at the point zero on the vertical zero c let f f f be the foci of the three principal ellipses then we find the auxiliary ellipse and hyperbola of which the common axes are 
A shout from Otto made him look up. "'What is the matter?' he asked with some alarm, seeing his friend turn pale. "'Read this!' cried Otto, completely astonished by the news he had received. Max took the letter, read it all through, read it a second time, glanced over the documents enclosed, and said, "'This is curious!' Then he filled his pipe and lighted it methodically. Otto watched him, all anxiety for his opinion. "'Do you think it can be true?' he exclaimed with a choking voice. "'True? To be sure it is. Your father has too much common sense. His judgment is too good to let him accept rashly so well-authenticated a statement as this. Besides, the proofs are there. It is, in fact, perfectly plain.' The pipe was now thoroughly lighted. Max resumed his work. Otto sat with his arms hanging down, unable even to finish his coffee, far less to bring two ideas together. He could not help speaking, just to convince himself that he was not asleep. But may I say, Max, if this is true, it is downright overwhelming. All these millions, why, it is an enormous fortune, mind you. Max looked up and nodded. Yes, enormous is the word for it. Most likely there is not one such in France. A few in the United States, five or six in England, not above fifteen or twenty in the world altogether. And a title into the bargain, resumed Otto. A foreign title, what is it? Let's see. Rajah. Not that I ever was ambitious of having a title, but if it comes in one's way, why, it certainly sounds more imposing than plain Saracen. Max shot forth a puff of smoke and uttered not a word. That puff of smoke distinctly said, Pooh, pooh. Certainly, continued Otto, I should never have stuck a duh before my name or assumed anything high-sounding as some people do, but to inherit a real genuine title and to take rank among the great princes of India without any possible chance of doubt or confusion? The pipe kept puffing. Pooh-pooh. My dear fellow, said Otto decidedly, you may say what you like, but I can tell you there is a good deal in blood, as the English express it. He stopped short as he caught the mocking smile in Max's eyes and returned to the contemplation of his millions. Do you recollect, Max, how Benome, our old arithmetic master, used to impress upon us every year in his opening lesson that five hundred millions was a number far beyond the grasp of one human mind, unaided by the resources of written figures, one has to consider that a man spending a franc every minute would take more than a thousand years to pay away such a sum. Well, it really is strange to think one has inherited five hundred millions of francs. Five hundred million francs, is it? cried Max with more interest than he had yet shown. Shall I tell you the best thing you can do? Give it to France for payment of her ransom. She only requires ten times as much. 
for mercy's sake, don't suggest such an idea to my father,' cried Otto, looking quite scared. "'He really might adopt it. I can tell you that he already has some notion of the kind in his head, some investment he might certainly make. But at least let us have the interest.' "'Come, we shall have you turn out to be a financier after all,' said Max. "'Something tells me, my poor Otto, that it would have been better for your father with his upright, intelligent mind if this great fortune had been of a more reasonable size. I would rather see you with an income of five and twenty thousand to share with your good little sister than with this great mountain of gold.' And Max went back to his work. As to Otto, he could not settle to anything, and fidgeted about the room till his friend got rather impatient, and said, "'You had better go out and take a walk, Otto. It is clear you are fit for nothing this evening.' "'You are quite right. I really am not,' replied Otto, who joyfully caught at this excuse for leaving off work, and seizing his hat, he clattered downstairs, and was soon in the street.' He presently stopped beneath a bright gaslight and read his father's letter again. He wanted to make sure he was not dreaming. Five hundred millions of francs, he kept repeating. That would be at least five and twenty millions a year. Why, if my father will only give me one million a year, say quarterly or half yearly, as my allowance, how happy I should be! Money can do so much. I am sure I should make an excellent use of it. I'm not a fool, not a bit of it. Didn't I get into the upper school? And then that title. I'm sure I could easily support the dignity of a title. As he passed along, he looked into all the shops. I shall have a fine house, horses, one for Max, of course. I becoming rich myself? He will become so likewise. Only think, five hundred millions. But somehow, now a fortune comes, it seems to me as though I had expected it. Something whispered that I should not be poring over books and plans all my life. As Otto revolved these thoughts, he was passing along beneath the arcades of the Rue de Rivoli, reaching the Champs-Élysées, he turned up the Rue Royale and reached the boulevards. The splendid shop-fronts, which formerly he regarded with indifference as exhibiting things utterly useless to him, now attracted lively attention, as he considered with a thrill of delight that he could at any moment possess any or all of these treasures. For me, said he to himself, for me, all this fine linen, all these exquisite soft cloths are manufactured. For me, watchmakers construct timepieces and chronometers. For my pleasure, the brilliant lustres of theatre and opera shed their dazzling lights. Violins scrape, prima donnas sing their enchanting strains. For me, horse-dealers train thoroughbreds, and the café anglaise is lighted up. All Paris is mine. Everything is at my disposal. 
travel. To be sure, I shall travel. I shall go and visit my Indian possessions. As likely as not, I shall buy a pagoda some day, priests and all, and the ivory idols into the bargain. I shall have elephants of my own. I shall have splendid guns and rifles. Go tiger shooting, and I must have a beautiful boat. A boat? What am I thinking about? A fine steam yacht? That's what I shall have. Go where I choose, stop as often as I like. Talking of steam, I have to give this news to my mother. Suppose I start for Douai. There is college to be considered. But then what's the use of college to me now? But Max, I must let him know. I should send him a message. Of course he will understand that under present circumstances I am in haste to see my mother and sister. Otto entered an office and sent a telegram to inform his friend that he was gone and would return in a couple of days. Then hailing a cab, he was driven to the terminus of the Northern Railway. Settling himself in the corner of a carriage, he continued to follow out his dreaming fancies until at two o'clock in the morning he arrived at Douai, hurried to his father's house, and rang the night bell so noisily that not only the family but all the neighbors were aroused by the peal. Night-capped heads popped out at various windows. "'Someone is ill. Who can it be?' inquired one and another. "'The doctor is not at home!' screamed the old servant from her attic window. "'It is I! It is I, Otto! Come down and let me in, Fanchon!' After a delay of ten minutes, Otto was admitted into the house. His mother and sister, hastily robed in dressing gowns, came downstairs, all anxiety to learn the cause of this visit. The doctor's letter, on being read aloud, explained the mystery. Madame Saracen was at first completely dazzled. She embraced her son and daughter with tears of joy. It seemed to her that the whole world was theirs, and that misfortune could never approach a family possessed of hundreds of millions of francs. Women, however, can more readily than men adapt themselves to circumstances, and to certain changes in fortune. Madame Saracen read her husband's letter again, felt that this great sum was his, that he would take all the responsibility of deciding what she and her children were to do, and speedily resumed her usual composure. As to Jeanette, she was glad to see her mother and brother so happy, but her childish imagination could picture no manner of life more delightful than that she led in her quiet home, occupied with her studies, and happy in the love of her parents. She could not see why a few bundles of banknotes should make any great change in her existence, and the prospect of it did not in the least degree discompose her. Madame Saracen had married at a very early age, a man entirely absorbed by the studious occupations of an ardent scholar and philosopher. She loved her husband and respected his tastes, although she could not always comprehend them. Incapable of sharing the pleasure which Dr. Saracen derived from study, 
she had at times felt herself lonely by the side of the enthusiastic man of science, and consequently centered all her hopes and aspirations in her children. She pictured for them a brilliant and happy future. Otto, she felt certain, was destined to do great things. From the time he took a place in the upper school, she mentally regarded that modest and useful college for young engineers as the nursery of illustrious men. Her only trouble was that their limited means might possibly prove an obstacle, or at least a difficulty, in the way of her son's brilliant career, and might ultimately also affect her daughter's establishment in life. But now, she so far understood the news conveyed in her husband's letter as to perceive that these fears were needless, and her satisfaction was entire. The mother and son spent most of the night in talking and making plans, while Jeanette, happy in the present, heedless of the future, was fast asleep in an armchair. "'You have not mentioned Max,' said Madame Saracen to her son. "'Have you not shown him your father's letter? What does he say about it?' "'Oh, you know what Max is,' answered Otto. He is worse than a philosopher. He is a stoic. I believe he fears the effect so enormous a fortune will have upon us. I say upon us, but he is not afraid for my father himself, whose good sense and judgment he says he can rely upon, but for you, mother, and Jeanette, and more especially for me. He plainly said he should have preferred an income of a few thousands a year. Perhaps Max is not far wrong, replied Madame Saracen, looking at her son. The sudden possession of great wealth is fraught with danger to some natures. Jeanette awoke and heard her mother's last words. Do you not remember, mother, said she, as rubbing her eyes, she rose and turned towards her little bedroom. Do you not remember you told me one day that Max was always in the right? I, for my part, believe what our friend Max says. And kissing her mother, Jeanette withdrew. End of section two.